This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. Hi, I'm Sanjeev Sularia. I'm the CEO and co-founder for Intelligence Node. What I love about retail is the instant ratification to fulfilling a consumption appetite. And funny enough, on the business side, I've been on both sides of the retail ecosystem. I've ran two e-commerce companies before this, and now here I am in a different avatar, helping e-commerce companies better serve consumers on the retail ecosystem. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm Mark Rako. I'm one of your hosts. And uh, with me, or I'm with her, I'm pretty sure, is Rebecca Fitz. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm doing very well. I think I'm in a punchy mood, maybe. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, anything can happen in this episode, I guess. Exactly. Uh, you never Come know. We're, we're hanging on. Well, I hope our guest Sanjeev is ready for us, and we're ready for him. Welcome to the show, Sanjeev. How are you? Uh, thank you very much. I'm great. How are you both doing? Good. Uh, where are you coming to us in the world from? I'm currently in Mumbai in India. Ah, God, I oh. love the 21st century. This the yeah, I know. Just, How fantastic. Just, let's just get on a video call together and record it, shall we? You're on the other side of the world. You know, my father for a year was in Dubai. This was This was several years ago. And I was shocked at the quality of the video call that we had. There was no perceptible delay. Uh, the quality was crisp. Um, and weirdly, I talked to him more often when he was in Dubai than when he was about 350 miles away, like <laughs> usual. So, but I, it always amazes me. I'm like, it's the other side of the world. It's, isn't it going into space and coming back? And why is there no perceptible delay? It's just an amazing thing. Anyway. Um, so here we are. Glad to have you. And I would love Sanjeev to to uh, to start here. It seems like I'm skipping ahead, but I think this may go to the heart of it. The heart of your company, really, my perception, and and please correct me if I've got this wrong. It really all rests in data. And let's start with a data dump, shall we? Um, <laughs> You guys are huge, and we can get into how huge. And you guys are definitely relevant. You're, the size of your company, the amount of data that you've accumulated and that you process, uh, and the way that you analyze and distribute it uh, is significant. You, it brings you a lot of big insights. So let's just start right here. We are in 2020, a very weird, in some ways unfortunate, in some ways an opportunity, in some ways confusing year unexpected year seems to change under our feet as we walk so given a year in which things seem to be rapidly recalculating almost like you're on map quest or something and then you know you this is all of a sudden your you know your uh your gps system's recalculating you know it's like the years recalculating to go how i guess it's two questions one is how are you able as a data company to keep up with the constant sense of sort of recalculating where the compass is aiming this year and going ahead? And secondly, if there's 
the biggest messages your overall data set is telling you right now about uh, retail and maybe commerce in general going forward? What are you able to ascertain and, and glean from that large data set at this moment? What's the big lesson? Sure. Uh, we're definitely on a reroute on that GPS. I think there's no denying that. I think we've all seen that curve of the e-commerce as a penetration of the U.S. retail um, growing. You know, it went from 5.6% to 16 from 2009 to 2019. It took a decade for that to happen. And then eight weeks into the pandemic, in it goes from 16 to 27%. You know, mountains have been moved in the last uh, few months. Uh, I think there's a paradigm shift and a shift that is here to stay. I think it's not about when things will get normal, it's when the new normal would get normal. And I think it would only get normal when we all come out and accept that this is the new reality. I think a lot of people have gotten over the barrier of either shopping online for the first time or at least getting comfortable with it. And I don't think that newfound behavior is going away anytime soon. Um, you know that digital transformation journey, which is now a must have and not just a good to have for everyone, I think it's been there knocking on the doors for the last, you know, at least half a decade, if not a full decade. The ones who already accepted that, adopted that it was something that you needed to do to be able to survive are the ones who actually thrived during a pandemic. The ones who are still making the transition good, but, you know, keeping your eyes shut and hoping that the storm would pass you by isn't the answer to what's happening around us. To put it into a context on where Intelligence Node was founded and what we see as one of the biggest lessons from the pandemic itself. Um, look, the pandemic is definitely not a nice thing. You know, the whole not being able to trust another human passing you by can't be good. Just can't be, you know. Uh, you know, a little kid walking up a, a side pathway and then there's another kid running to meet them and there are parents stopping them from hugging each other can't be a nice thing for anyone concerned wherever in the world they are. But what's good about it is that that push that was necessary to at least push the retail ecosystem into a sense or a jolt of reality, probably the pandemic's done that. To put it into context on what we see in our database itself, um, you know, there's one player in Amazon that sits on the absolute outlier of technology first adoption and how they address retail. And one of the biggest things and the impacts that we make with our technologies around pricing, pricing benchmark, price optimization, dynamic pricing. And I think something that we started seeing even before the pandemic and it's become uh, a lot more important today is that Amazon with about 270 million products wide kind of a width has the ability to reprice a product based on competitor or consumer movement. And the average response time is about two minutes. That same average response time as a blended average for the US e-commerce market is 43,000 minutes. That's a month. That same average response time as a blended average for the US brick and mortar market is 270 days. Oh. And you know, if you look at the last three years, um, cumulative growth rates, Amazon's growing at 27%, e-commerce growing you know, somewhere in the low double digits, and brick and mortar's growing at 2%. And that war of those annual growth rates isn't one annually, quarterly, or even daily, it's one intraday. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons that as retail, you know, both on um, direct retailing side, wholesale side, manufacturers, brands, CPG side, digital first is just not good to have anymore. And it's not just about setting up a website. You need to be agile and nimble enough to react to that demanding consumer. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the biggest and the strongest lessons that we've learned 
and is one that's going to stay with us for a very long time. Let me uh, reverse engineer this a little bit then. Um, so then my understanding is if I am an e-commerce retailer and I'm looking to improve um, and even though this is kind of a great time to be in e-commerce, I can come to you um, and use data that you have to assess um, how to do some of these things better, i.e. change my prices appropriately, um, maybe not as quick as Amazon, but uh, you know more quickly. So it's not about the data I have essentially. Uh, that, that's absolutely correct. And not just on pricing. Pricing is probably one of the three pillars that we have, we stand on. It's pricing, assortment, and product visibility. I think those are the three pillars that our database and intelligence node stands upon. And I think even when we looked at when we started the company um, eight years ago, it feels like yesterday, uh, you know, we saw a very large and fragmented window landscape servicing retail from a pricing and assortment optimization angle. You know, there was a the big, large consultants in, in done a great job in BCGs, Bain, McKinsey, very large solutions landscape in um, Oracle, SAP, Dunhumby, um, Fractal, Ugam, Monthan, Antwit. You know, can can go on. There's hundreds of them, and they've all built either a niche or multiple verticals. They've delivered a lot of client value, and then specifically around pricing, you know, there was the emergence of machine-led or software-led uh, pricing solutioning for the retail ecosystem. And then we looked at all of them and the reason why we decided to get into them is at a first principle level, we thought that all of them were missing one, a single, but a really simple component to that decision tree of getting to a recommended smart price. And that single factor was something as simple as the consumer always has a shop option to shop somewhere else. And how could you miss that out? You're all optimizing, whether it's bespoke strategy work, whether it's solutioning and consulting, or it's a complete software, if you're relying on the retailer brand or manufacturer's own data alone, then you're taking away the power the consumer has that, look, I want to go somewhere else and fulfill my consumption appetite. And that's where we decided something needed to be done. Uh, both myself and my co-founder come from capital markets backgrounds. We ran a hedge fund um, in, in a different life where you're, you know, you're pricing on the fifth decimal place every microsecond. And we said, why don't we bring that environment to retail where you Look at the market first. Look at where the category is going before you start overlaying your risk and liquidity appetite to get into a price. And nothing like that existed. And I think that's essentially, if nothing else, I think the biggest value that we've created over the last years is creating the world's largest product retail database. We track north of about 1.2 billion unique products covering 200,000 unique brands, 1,400 plus retail categories. And we collect and normalize this data globally in about 29 different languages. And, you know, connecting the story back, we, we, we uh, you know, monitor and evaluate the whole database for three key levers, pricing assortment and product visibility. And so where are you normally coming in in the process? Because one of the things that um, I'm more on the physical side of retail, but they're, they're so attached now, really omni-channel has come into itself. The world went berserk when we went into a pandemic and particularly for retail, you had placed your orders X number of months in advance. Um, and then if you were a bathing suit brand and nobody was going on holiday, unless you lived in a warm climate, all of a sudden you've got this inventory of bathing suits. Even if you held your inventory very close to the sun, um, then how do you move it and how do you price it? Um, and then I think, how do you price it without um, 
saying, hey, I'm giving you a really deep discount because I've got a pandemic sitting on my head. And I'm not sure if you help on that end of it. I think it's probably up to the brand on how they position it. That current battle is going on right now. And I imagine is going to go on, you know, right into 2021 for some brands. Sure. I think that's a great question. Um, I think how we see retail in the last decade, it's gone from single channel to multi-channel um, to omni-channel. And now something we love to coin it as is consumer relevance commerce. It's not even omni-channel anymore. You know, omni-channel for the longest time has been referred to as a single view of the customer. That isn't really enough. What you need is single view of inventory. To your example, you know, if you're a bathing suit brand and you're either online only or in-store only, or you have both, but you aren't connecting your inventory, whether you're online only and nothing is moving and you know you have all that tech infrastructure and you have a central warehouse and you're trying to ship to all over the country, uh, then you know you really can't drop your prices because just the cost of operation is so high, so high. And if you start matching those prices for somebody who's coming up with a tiny private label and I'm assuming you're a established national brand, then that price war is going to you know sink both those companies down to the bottom and it's a zero-sum game. You can't constantly be cheaper than the next. If you're store only or you run your store inventory separately, there is no way, no store, no matter how large it is, can ever carry the entire width and depth of inventory. So you can't stock everything and then you really hope for sell through. So eventually you will run into an out of stock situation. What happens when someone walks in during a pandemic when you're not expecting a lot of sales and then the color and the size that they wanted is the exact one that you don't have in stock. If they can't log on to a tablet, and then purchase it off your online store. Or when you really can't service that particular zip code using your online destination because your central warehouse is halfway across the country, if you can't leverage that tiny store that isn't doing sales anyway to consider them as a micro warehouse and then use the customer to click online and buy in store or have a curbside pickup on what grocery is doing, I think that's the holy grail of where retail is headed. And that's sort of what we're beginning to track. You know. Our primary data collection is online. And you know, a few years ago, had we gone to one of the Fortune 500 majors, they would have said, listen, my revenue from e-commerce is 5%. I don't know how I can utilize your data to start influencing my in-store prices or my omni-channel unified pricing. Does the consumer really care? I think we did a consumer survey. We, we spoke to about 6,000 unique individuals over the course of nine months from you know, the holiday season, the beginning of the tariff war, uh, coming to the start of the pandemic, the middle of the pandemic, the big grocery e-commerce boom, and a resounding number that came out of it, that 94% of millennial and Gen Z shoppers either look for product availability or price comparison, even while they're shopping in store. So from a hygiene level, if you aren't doing that, and from an efficiency level, if you aren't doing unified pricing, you're not just going to lose a sale. You're going to create a consumer perception that you know you're just more expensive for a uh, for a for a set of a bathing suit attribute that came in you know it was a uh, whether it was a mohicani it was a bikini it was in a certain color it came in a certain fabric uh, you had the right sizes no matter how far you fulfill the assortment width pricing is still a very strong perception in a consumer's mind to come back to a brand and keep repeatedly purchasing. Well, plus, if you don't have uniform pricing, it seems to me like there's always going to be a suspicion on the consumer's mind. Maybe I can find a different price elsewhere because that seems to be how it works, which means they spend their time searching, not buying. 
Exactly. And and what is it to say when they go searching, they wouldn't find a better deal? Because they right. probably so will, right? Close the sale. right? So you'd right. rather close the sale while they're still engaged in store or online. And and I don't necessarily believe this. I don't think it's every retailer against Amazon, but you know, I've definitely I, I can give thousands of examples and I really want to buy from the designer, but if it's so so expensive and then you put in enamel jewelry on Amazon and someone's doing it, you might might be apt to do that. But um, what I do think is interesting about this is that, you know, what in many ways, what you're saying is um, inventory is where it's at. And if you can control that and where it is, then you have a much better chance of making the sale, essentially. Uh, absolutely. I think if you look at, you know, both venture capital as well as retail innovation tech dollars, where they've gone in the last 10 years are better personalization, better marketing, retargeting, um, AI for chatbots, AI for consumer analytics, and, and that is all great. But what is retail at the, at the end of it? It's bought, sold, remaining, that is your balance sheet. Everything else is OPEX. So if you don't focus on the backbone and the nuts and bolts of retail, um, you know, no matter how good you do from an experience perspective, if you don't have the right product and the right variant at the right price, at the right time when the consumer is ready to consume or shop, then everything else, uh, you know, can can sit where it is, but you're not going to gain any loyalty. And where are you, um, where are folks coming to you when they're in the process? So uh, I'm a merchandiser at Hudson Bay. I'm actually, you know, talking to the factories and putting in the orders. Am I... Um, working with you all before I even place the order, or if I probably, if I'm smart, I am, <laughs> um, <laughs> or is it after the order is placed and people are kind of cutting into the process then saying, I've got to move things around, which obviously is probably happening because um, lo and behold, we're, we're in a pandemic. Sure. Um, you know, I'd love to believe that, you know, it's the entire product life cycle. When you're planning what to get, understanding what is live, where, and what we're in, what's the price, what's the promotion, what's the product description imagery. We also track, um, you know, what is the position of a product on any given e-commerce channel. And everyone from a sort algorithm perspective is either pushing the most viewed or the best selling product to top of the page. So in a Hudson Bay example, if they wanted to say, what is common to the top 100 brands in the country selling women's dresses? What made it to top of the page across all 100? You know, necklines, fabrics, what type of dresses are they? Are they fit and flare, A-line, maxis, sheets? Do they come with a slit? Do they come with a stud? What fabric they're made of? All those nuances can be combined for you to understand what would work from a present day assortment perspective and not two seasons out or what is luxury doing? Can I adapt it into high street? It is a very current trend. Um, and then once you've done with understanding that, what's the launch price? From a launch price to both age-driven, consumer sentiment-driven, competition positioning-driven, how do you plan your promotions and markdowns? Not purely where merchandisers said, once I'll have a 60% sell-through, I take my first markdown, and then I'll sell another 20%, I'll take my second markdown. The, those standardized OTBs and planograms have still have a role to play because you still need to plan on how much to procure. But once things get into an action, you get hit with a pandemic. You get hit with a change in consumer perception. You know, you get with, hit with sustainability being really important for you to procure in fashion. A lot can change from you procuring product to eventually consumers consuming and eventually till you when run out of stock and, and, and get in a new line altogether. Uh, and that's not just true for fashion. You know, it's true for 
grocery because perishables would have a shorter life, but the sentiment can change a lot faster. Furniture, which you know procurement can take much much longer. It's it's true for almost every single category. So I'd like to believe that we you know we have a purpose or forget about us generally. Um, data reliance has a purpose to serve in that entire product lifecycle, both from the supplier side as well as the consumption side. Because I think whether even consumers see it today or not, the entire buying cycle has at some point a digital impression point, even if the sale isn't done digitally. From how do you discover a product? Social media, promotions coming in, referrals, or somebody that you like to follow talking about a product, to you then going on a search engines, looking them up, reading descriptions, reading reviews, to then doing a side-by-side -side comparison on where is it available? What's the price? Do I have other options from other brands? And then finally, you know, figuring out a place where you're going to purchase and making sure at that point you have that product available in, in your variant to be able to purchase. All those um, interactions can have one or multiple digital influences along the buying journey. That's also a lot of work for the customer to have to do it on their own. You know, that's... I think I think it's subtle. I think I don't even think they're doing it. I don't even realize when I'm doing yeah. it. Uh, you know, recently I was buying a washing machine, and it could be as simple as buying a washing machine. The amount of research that I've been through it, you know, do I really need that ad yeah. wash? Am I going to forget a T-shirt and then I need to put it back in, or do I need a better dryer, or do I, you know, look at what's happening around sustainability and and nature in general, electricity yeah. saving, and the energy store is important. And by the time you start asking yourself those questions, there's a hundred options in front of you. Uh, so I think it's it's subtly embedded in all of us. So interesting. All right, coming up, you're going to hear Sanjeev uh, discuss data and inventory, as well as how you try to control the presence and flow of counterfeit goods. Right up to this. As an American. There is no greater privilege and responsibility than choosing who will represent you and your family to determine the course of history, your lives, the economy, your health, your safety. On November 3rd, please choose to vote. To vote early or if you need an absentee or mail-in ballot, please visit vote.org. Your future self thanks you. Sanjeev, uh, right sure. now, uh, really any time for sure, but there's no question retailers right now, they've tightened their belts uh, both financially and in process, cut the fat, if you will. And definitely an area that needs to be controlled is avoiding excess inventory, taking up storage space, not moving, not being sold, uh, creating a clog up and, and affecting, obviously, supply chains too. And tied in with that is... What happens when you start to get counterfeit goods flooding the market and intercepting consumers uh, that you so desperately need? So can you talk a little bit about how your company addresses these issues, how the data and insights that you provide can, can not only address these issues, but help retailers stay on their toes? So I think just the pure inventory issue, if I, if I separate that from okay. counterfeits um, to begin with, I think even that on its own is a double-edged sword. You know, one thing is the non-essential categories that haven't moved off the shelf for a while and you've been sitting on them and, you know, uh, you, you want to get them uh, moving. For retailers that already have reorders in place and they're either, you know, 
being produced overseas or being, being produced locally, but they're already with you, uh, they definitely want to get a move on. You know, they want to start selling um, so that you know they can replenish the shelves and 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 carry on um, getting a higher sell through. For the ones that have limited inventory and are dependent upon overseas production, specifically for you know a lot of lifestyle categories, uh, the U.S.-China specific relationship, the tariff war could come back, trade embargoes um, could come back. There's a lot of macroeconomic issues where you know even if you know everyone the stores open out, the consumption's back, you start getting pre-COVID or probably even higher consumption rates because you know a line of um, simple bed sheets and pillow covers might have been non-essential during the pandemic, but you haven't repurchased them for more than six months. They're essential now. You know your um, crew neck cotton t-shirt or a regular um, uh, maxi cotton dress. Suddenly, the basics would become essentials because just that consumption hasn't happened for a while. So it could spark a, a very you know increased sell through. Luxury, you know, we've all heard about the revenge shopping happening in China. Is that going to happen over in the U.S.? Uh, we worked with particular very large luxury, multi-brand luxury player over in the Europe, and they said they're done with their sales quota for the year already. Uh, you know, there's just sudden crazy appetite for consuming luxury. Uh, is that going to happen in the U.S.? You know, there's one side of it looking at pro- probably from a retailer's perspective, but with everyone um, severely hit from an economic standpoint, you know, talking about luxury consumption doesn't feel right in yeah. one go, but but there's a there's a uh, necessity on the other side. So looking at that, I think where you're producing, how you're producing would define whether you start going into promotion and start driving heavy sell through or being start beginning to being protective. Because I think the, this, this conversation started not with the pandemic, it actually started earlier last year with the tariff yeah. wars where everyone wanted to move their factories out of China or tariff head, uh, tariff hit geographies. And that is an easy job. It takes years, if not longer, to, to, to be able to do that. Um, so I think private label will see a massive push because basics are the bigger necessity. They are the need of the hour. Um, I think there's a heavier sentiment that we got from a consumer survey where consumers, specifically the Gen Z shoppers, wanted to support local brands or locally produced uh, you know, private labels rather than national brands um, that are producing overseas. So private label would definitely see a pick. You know what we've seen with Target, it's a great positioning where their private label is cheaper than the national brands, but not by much. It's only 5% cheaper. So they're really positioning this as a proper brand where there's a value add over just the consumption need. Um, switching conversation to the other extreme on the counterfeit side, I think that's an equally bigger problem more so in the larger marketplace landscape where any small seller can come up and list a product and the authenticity of that is extremely difficult to judge you can go by reviews you can go by um, price perception point but then the onus is actually on the marketplace owners and the retailers on what they're showcasing to customers because you know you can't really blame somebody for looking for a bargain Uh, and i think we saw that two-in-one shoppers were actually okay buying a counterfeit uh, because they were getting a price discount to perception. Uh, but then, you know, even very large marketplaces like eBay and Amazon were mentioned in the consumer survey, respectively 20% and 18% of the, uh, the respondents mentioned that they were two um, retail destinations where uh, uh, the consumers felt that counterfeits were in heavy circulation. From the data that we look at, we, we assume that about 5 to 7% of the total uh, goods in circulation at this point in the U.S. could be counterfeits. 
Uh, and, you know, I think Amazon for sure has recognized that. I think they've came out on their shareholders report saying that a significant percentage of the market cap would be threatened by not just by counterfeits, by pricing violations and SLAs signed by big brands. You know, we've seen Nike take a very strong stance in delisting themselves of marketplaces and the wholesale channel and saying we'll go direct to consumer trying to preserve that brand perception. Pepsi is talking about DTC. Unilever is talking about DTC. It's not just driven by the e-commerce boom. It's also driven by can we control that environment and the brand promise that we take to consumers and not get diluted down in a multi-seller environment. What about unauthorized sellers? So it's not a counterfeit, it's not a violation, but you were never authorized to sell the product in the first place. So I think that's something that we're seeing as a very large space where you know we're getting inquiries from brand owners, CPG players, multi-brand manufacturers saying, I want to monitor my own product across multiple channel partners, drop shipping partners, marketplaces to just make sure that my prices, my store prices are being, you know, SLAs are being met. Only authorized sellers are bringing my product into circulation. And finally, you know, there's no counterfeit altogether. Very interesting what you said. I do think it's applicable kind of to another discussion, which is, um, you know, department stores imploding and what um, what took place there. And was it um, and I know it was a wide variety of things that went wrong. But I, you know, I think something you said about um, Pepsi is going direct to consumer, you know, all these other people are going direct to consumer, protecting um, unique luxury brands, whether that's sneakers or or purses. Um, it seems really applicable to what is happening with department stores right now, which are imploding for a number of reasons. Um, I'm sure inventory is one of them. Um, they're not adapting to going direct to consumer. But from your perspective, um, what what were some of the issues that you may have seen either firsthand or just, or just even very broadly um, that you all probably could have attacked or can attack from a a, a, a data perspective? I think it's a, it's a, it's an issue about, uh, you know, leadership. It's an issue about change management. Uh, it's an issue about inventory. Uh, and it's a larger issue about being technology pro or not. The large department or big box retailers, the multi-brand, uh, you know, the conglomerates, some of them have actually thrived uh, during the pandemic, I think partially because of the category mix that they had. Um, and then, you know, partially because they went omni-channel and e-commerce ready multiple years uh, before the pandemic set in. I think for the ones that remained extremely dependent upon, uh, you know, not having a lot of private label play, depending upon other brands to come in and playing in categories that have been the hardest hit by the pandemic, which you can't really blame them for. Nobody saw it coming. But I think more importantly, it was them not recognizing the e-commerce promise, the digital promise, you know, just having a, a satellite office as your um, digital revenue office and treating like a startup within a larger conglomerate isn't enough. That needs to come into the central fold of the leadership and the central strategy. It needs to be a board level mandate to adopt that. Uh, I think omni-channel retailing has been another piece. For long, it's been pushed out. You, you can't really have either this or that. It has to be the best of both worlds because the consumer is everywhere. Uh, you know, We spoke about this earlier. They're going from discovering product online to then probably experiencing it offline, then coming and reading and reviewing and, and, and making up the decision back on their phones or, or their laptops and then converting 
either online or in store. So I think if the consumer is shopping that way, the retailers need to be present in each of those arenas. And, you know, while a lot of department stores are struggling, partially because of the inventory problem, the categories that they played in, or their um, inertia of not going adopting the new normal. But then there are quite a few that have actually, you know, um, had struggle on the offline front, but they were actually even able to capitalize when Amazon could not meet the demand. When Amazon was going out looking for manpower and technology and warehousing shelf space to be able to fulfill the demand that suddenly hit them, quite a few of them, Target, Walmart, you know, came in and stepped up and reallocated inventory from stores that were shut to being able to allocate it to the online channel, reallocate human resources um, off the offline channel into online channels to be able to deliver and gain some market share. Uh, Bed, Bath, Bed Bath Beyond is a classic example where you know, they initially had a, a big downsizing on their market share and revenues on the offline side, but then e-commerce grew 80% plus month on month. Uh, and I think they were ready to capitalize on that. It doesn't fulfill the entire revenue gap, but it at least gives them a head start on where to focus next. So I think it's a combination of all those problems. It's not just purely an inventory and the category that you played in. It's your approach towards how large a role technology has to play, not just today but 10 years out. If you're reacting to a thing like pandemic and saying, I'm going to become digital first today, then you'll grab onto technology that will just help you get by for today in 2021 and 22. But if you're not ready to get on, um, you know, trust machine learning, trust AI, trust AR for great consumer experiences, if you don't catch onto the bandwagon of the latest cutting edge technology to serve your customers for at least a decade out, then you'll always be, you know, um, chasing behind the the front runners. Yep, it, it's it's a big one. Thank you for that answer because it's not it's certainly not a five words or less answer <laughs> with with the department stores. All right, Sanjeev, what a um, a delightfully comprehensive journey through these topics, and I think uh, this is the most appropriate moment to uh, move on to exploring you as a human. Uh, with some personal questions, which are coming up right after this. Hey, Dresden, do you like to laugh? Oh, Mark, heartily, heartily. Elsie, do you like comedy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to laugh at Elsie. I know, me too. <laughs> Listen to funny people talking every week. It's a podcast, and we talk about humor and comedy. And honestly, we can barely get through a commercial. But I promise you'll have a good time here. And we talk to amazing people, comedians, business leaders, inspiring people about their lives and about humor, about comedy. We play improv games. Babble. We babble. We talk about... Uh, You'll be inspired and you'll laugh. (laughs) That's why he has a co-host. We have... That's right. We have great food, <laughs> celebrity stories, and we always play an improv game. So come on by. You'll have a great time. Funny people talking wherever the best podcasts are found. Sanjeev, uh, we've learned a lot about everything from data to inventory to counterfeit uh, goods and much more. And uh, now let's learn about you. Uh, as we explore the personal side of Sanjeev. Uh, I feel like that should be like a big announcer voice and some background music. And now the personal side of Sanjeev. But 
Uh, maybe I'll lead it off if, if that's okay with you, Rebecca. Um, Please, yes. Uh, Sanjeev, um, as you look back when you were younger, it could be as a child or it could be in college or your younger years. As you look back, who might stand out as someone other than a than an immediate family member because saying like a father or mother is a very understandable answer in so many cases who may have said something or done something that became quite influential to you in setting you off on a path changing your identity or maybe really having a profound impact on the way you saw the world wow um I, I think um, a lot of my childhood was influenced by sports. Um, I think probably alien to a, a lot of our listeners uh, over in, in, in the North America. Cricket is a very popular sport uh, in India. And I think I grew up playing a lot of cricket, uh, you know, uh, even sort of professionally to a point. And then I went to study over in the UK and then carried on playing cricket. And I think just having, you know, starting off at under 10s, under 14s, traveling across the country with other um, um, you know, uh, players or teammates of the same age. I think the biggest thing it taught me was that at that age, if you won a game and were really ecstatic, you had to share it with people that same age group. If you lost a game, you could only express that sorrow to people of that same age group. If you got injured, it was other 10 or 14 years old looking after you and you were, you know, traveling on your own. So I think it taught me a few things. One was to be very independent, but at the same time, the ability to go out and trust others around you, irrespective of you know, whether they're experts or not, whether as long as they have your best intent at heart, you know, it's ability to empathize, sympathize and trust them. And I think that's gone a long way in me becoming, uh, you know, half an entrepreneur that that I, I believe that I am and then I can go on to be because I'm always aspiring to get better. Um, I think other than that, you know, looking at other people that, you know, were charismatic that I looked up to, be it people in the world of sports, people in the world of music, Whatever passion I followed, even business, when I, you know, decided that technology was an area that I wanted to study and pursue and, and, and probably I, I never thought I'll start a company on my own. But, you know, just looking at other entrepreneurs around, following their stories, reading about that, I think it's accumulation of all those little impressions that, you know, get instated into your brain that drive you to, to you know, to do and, and decide and, and react to things that you are faced with on day to day life basis. It is amazing how a single interaction, one dinner you're invited to and you meet somebody, whatever, the smallest thing can profoundly impact the path that you're on. I think about one person I met when I first came to New York, I didn't know anybody. And I decided that I was going to um, uh, meet more people. So I created this little group of people I called the Royal Association of Likely Friends. And I created social occasions that... Uh, you just had to invite someone you thought I would like. And and by doing that, I met a, a person who ultimately, just by meeting that person, it's put me on a path. And I'm meeting you now and sitting here. I know Rebecca. And I can wind it all the way back that it led all from just meeting that single person. And uh, And that can happen with something someone says, something someone does or doesn't do someone who leaves you or resigns or someone who comes into your world. It all matters. And I completely understand where you're coming from. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, Rebecca, you're on. And be careful what you ask because maybe it'll profoundly affect Sanjeev's life. 
<laughs> You're certainly a technology person. Uh, what app do you have on your device that is is either very unique or or unusual that you can share with us? Wow, that's a that's a brilliant tough one because because you know while technology is my professional uh, means of living my life and 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 making a living and a big believer in that. Uh, on my personal side, I actually stay away from technology. I'm not on social media. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Twitter. Uh, I think my last Facebook update was 2007. Uh, so no, not a, not a lot of apps up there. Probably not not so much unique, but I think I'm getting to that age where I've got a sleep tracker. Very good. More and more people are like, you know, it's so funny. Technology is so interesting to me. I'm not making fun of what you said at all, but it's like for literally many thousands of years, we have slept without sleep trackers. And suddenly our ability to track our sleep, we now feel that we can and we need to. All right, Sanjeev, that seems like a wonderful place to conclude our discussion. Thank you so much for everything. How can people connect with you uh, if they want to find you, connect you, follow you, and so forth? Uh, Please do connect, you know, whatever it may be for us to work together, partner up, um, just exchange ideas. Uh, I'm available on my email, which is s.solaria s dot s u l a r i a at intelligence uh or hit me up on linkedin that's probably the only social media that i'm on uh it's sanjeev solaria uh and i'm sort of happy to connect with anyone who wants to Thank you so much to sanjeev solaria the ceo and co-founder of intelligence node um, you should check them out. Check it. Check out their site. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty interesting stuff, and they have a lot to offer. We really appreciate you dialing all the way from India, uh, as happens so so commonly these days. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. Best of luck going forward. That's it for this episode. We really appreciate everybody joining us uh, for Rebecca Fitz. Thanks, Mark. All right, I'm Mark Rico. Have a great day, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye. This has been Retail is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Audio for business.